Hey, everybody. I just want you to know one thing about Citizen Kane. I'm not interested in gold mines, oil wells, all that stuff. I'm just interested in the real thing. Citizen Kane. What's going on there? What's his moxie? What's his angle? What do you guys say? Who is this Kane guy? Yeah. (laughs) You're going to have to reword that one for me because I'm already confused. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's kind of the theme of the show, isn't it? That's true. That's confusing me. Already and you confused. Yeah, <laughs> I'm already confused. Great. You guys might have to take the wheel on this one. And a uh, perfect pre-show chatter. Thanks, you guys. They yell about directors, yell about the plot, yell about the acting, but they also talk a lot. But mostly Josh and Cassie. Yeah. About the movies. Hey, guys and gals, Cassie here. I'm going to interrupt for a just a quick second and give a shout out to our sponsor, which is Sweet Heat Chocolates. You guys have heard me talk about Sweet Heat before, right? Sweet Heat is a small chocolate specialty shop located in the village of Greendale, Wisconsin. They are handmade spicy chocolates. You can you can choose how hot you want them to be. And let me tell you, Sweet Heat is like the OG in the spicy chocolate game. And by that, I mean they were literally the first in the country, possibly even the world. And it's just really an awesome place. Support small businesses. I work with the owner. And yeah, he's an awesome dude. So you can visit their website at sweetheatchocolates.com. There you can also find a link to their Etsy page. They also have a Facebook page you can check out. So that is sweetheatchocolates.com. All right, guys, back to the show. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on another fantastic episode of Josh and Cassie Yell About Movies. I'm Josh, a a veteran, independent uh, writer about podcasting and freelance journalist who talks to fine folks like we have on the episode today. And my co-host, Cassie, come on down. Here I am. Hi. Yeah, Uh, my name is Cassie. I'm a TV newser, promotions producer, yoga instructor, and movie fanatic. And I'm happy to be here today. Wonderful. I'm happy to be here, too, guys. We have a fantastic guest today talking with us about a classic film, Citizen Kane. Uh, He's a veteran of stage, screen, and podcasting, better known most famously as Dr. Venture from Venture Brothers on Adult Swim, uh, and possibly soon in the film version of that. We'll find out. Uh, Guys, it's James Urbaniak. Hi. Hey. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Thanks for having me, Josh. Yes. Exciting to be uh, here. It's it's exciting for us too. This is the first time for us uh, talking about a classic film. Although, interesting. Keep in mind, audience, this is an exception because we talked about Mank before, and uh, James wanted to know can we talk about Citizen Kane because that's what you know the the grounding of Mank is about. And I said, why not? So I went back and watched it. I fell asleep the few times I tried to watch it before. So uh, if you when, haven't seen it yet, what's up? When did you? Uh- you fell asleep the first time you you tried to watch it years ago. Is that correct? That's correct. And Josh, then, you fall asleep a lot during movies. That's kind of just a you thing. <laughs> possibly. Yeah. Also, it happened in 2001 A Space Odyssey as well. Go ahead, James. What was it? What was... Because I don't think of it as a lulling film. What What right. was it that knocked you out in the sense of going to sleep? Do you recall? I thought about this a lot. and I, I feel like it's the opening, uh, which after watching the whole film now and uh, having a great appreciation for film, I feel like the opening's a, a, a little stodgy with its newsreel opening. Perhaps that put me to sleep. You know, there was no story there. It, sort of, it took me out. This is fascinating because the newsreel 
tells the whole story of the movie, basically mm-hmm. the character, it sets it up. And then the movie does this quasi experimental thing where uh, it plays with time. A la Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. if you will. It kind of, yeah. it, you know, and different perspectives on the characters. But the newsreel itself is interesting because, by the way, I, I'm, I'm into the film. It lands for me. What did you, let me back up for a second. So you watched it again recently, right? Yep. Within the last couple of days or whatever. And what was your response that time? Uh, well, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, uh, I still think the newsreel section, while effective for you, is a bit too long. It's close to 10 minutes. I don't think it needs 10 minutes to tell a story, which as they exemplified at the end of the movie, when they sort of summed it up with that, his whole life's a jigsaw puzzle. You know, that, that thing that they did in the forties where they sort of summarized the whole, whole film is, uh, yeah, I didn't think they needed 10 minutes to tell that opening story, but yeah, I, I love the, the character building, the world building. I still felt that a lot of the film, the character sort of kept us at arm's length. He sort of kept everybody at arm's yeah, length, didn't he? Yeah, that's what he is. Cassie, what do, what do you think? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I don't mean to run the show here, but I'm curious. No, about that's your fine. I mean, Please, I, I love it when <laughs> guests jump in and sort of you know, do their own thing. You know, I'm not I'm not going to be like the one person in the world who's like, oh, yeah, I don't like Citizen You Kane, can be, though. Obviously, even if I didn't. By the way, I, I, no, no, I don't want to. I'm not coming from a place of arguing for it because there's no argument to be made. It either lands or it doesn't. It's like mm-hmm. you like sushi or you don't or something. I love the movie, but I'm not coming from a place of arguing or if you're not into it or don't like aspects of it. I'm just interested in how it lands for people and no one's right or wrong. It's just how it lands for you. So, and I have my own right. crackpot theories about it and stuff. So I'm happy to get into that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> looking forward to that. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Citizen Kane theory. But we okay. were talking no, about Cassie's you know impression I, of the movie. So go on. Yeah. I am really. I'm in awe of it. Mm. I respect it when I'm watching it. Oftentimes when I'm watching classic cinema, it almost feels like I'm watching like a foreign film. I just, I I find it hard to interpret and figure out what's happening. And you're right. There was a lot of time jumping. Why why are old movies hard for you to figure out? Like, what is it? Um, The way they, the way they talk and the way they're structured. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. There's a chance that films have just been dumbed down since then. I don't know. You know what I, you know what I no. mean. I, for some reason, I just find newer films easier. Well, to there's uh, this is interesting because um, um, I don't think films have dumbed down. I think styles and storytelling change. So okay, and, yeah. So like, let's. It really is. It's a language. It's like a different. Yeah, and language. There, I don't know there how there are else references and just conventions that whether you're using those conventions or going against them, which Citizen Kane does both, an audience 80 years ago is going to have a different take on what you're doing with those conventions than an audience today. So, for example, the opening sequence that Josh thinks is kind of boring. A little too long. I love that sequence. But again, I'm not arguing that you're wrong. I'm just saying this is my take on it. So it's, first of all, the thrust of that sequence is satirical. It's heightened the way a Coen Brothers uh, film might be. It's actually supposed to be kind of funny. The announcer is doing a kind of parody of that kind of announcing. And even the writing of that sequence is meant to be kind of funny the way they phrase the words and stuff. And that style, it's very much a parody of sort of the way Time Magazine and other newsreels wrote uh, that kind of material back then. 
And then it has all these inter- these funny sort of technical things where it's showing obviously fake footage of Kane throughout his life. And sometimes the footage has been scratched. So it looks old. It also has meta jokes in it. The first time Kane is being interviewed in the newsreel, an interviewer asks him a question about something. And Kane says, don't believe everything you hear on the radio, which is a direct reference to Orson Welles's War of the Worlds broadcast, which is the thing that made him famous. <sighs> I didn't. That's the thing that made him that. famous. Oh, so that's, that's like good, a yeah. meta joke about, yeah, here I am, the guy who freaked everybody out in War of the Worlds. So all I'm saying is there are all these different. They did that same thing. Sorry. They, sorry. They did that same thing throughout the film, like when Leland uh, in his uh, post, uh, post-death of Kane sequence says, well, I never really believed everything in those papers yeah. anyway. So there's mm-hmm. just, there's, there's stuff in that sequence that that lands for an audience in a certain way who at the time knew the War of the Worlds, knew what those newsreels sounded like, understood when they're being kind of sent up. And then, quite understandably, 80 years later, many viewers might start the movie and they're like, okay, it's in black and white. This announcer's talking in a weird old-timey voice. There's scratches on the film. This is like an old movie. I just, people already get their defenses up. I'm not saying this was your reaction, but I'm just saying this is, so, so it actually has the opposite reaction where people, some people kind of stand back and go, I don't know, this, this, is, this is closed for me. I can't find my way into this. And so it's just a different way it's of processing stuff, you know. But the whole movie is like that. It's actually being super inventive and it's completely reflecting its very, very young director's incredible excitement. Orson Welles is beside himself through this movie. And he's a super talented guy. So (laughs) there's, for me, what lands is an almost visceral, very palpable sense of this young director's excitement at creating something and doing stuff in a new way with a lot of energy and invention and humor. And that's what lands for me in the movie. And I think that, and so it's personal in that way. And so I think that that personal connection that he has with the movie, it's all his vision and it's all his energy that still lands for people over the years. And that's why it continues to be acclaimed. But on the other hand, I also understand how some people today might watch it and they just don't see a way into this, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd, I'd like to ask Please. you a follow-up question about that. Obviously the, the film is a reflection of his intensity and burning desire to uh, be as great as Citizen Kane was. Uh, well, the, you know, the character, uh, but since we're since we're coming into this from watching Mank recently, <laughs> and uh, Mank, uh, if you guys haven't seen the film, uh, I made back it halfway through listen. Mank. I made it halfway. I was oh, you the first okay. time you watched Kane. I was like, I'm out. I'm out. I'll mm-hmm. be. And that subject matter is right up my alley. But I was like, and I haven't gone back to watch the second half yet. So I'm sorry to interrupt. But go on. Okay. I hadn't seen Citizen Game for Mank, and obviously that might help. But the, the main takeaway for me initially from Mank and relating to this is that Mank, the screenwriter of Citizen Kane, wrote a huge amount more script than Orson Welles used. So much, uh, I think Orson Welles cut out, uh, from my recollection, probably two-thirds of what Mank wrote and only gave him co-screenwriting credit uh, at the Oscars. So... How much of that came out? Or did you, did you know that history of the, the screenplay? Of, yeah, I know, you know that Herman Mankiewicz officially wrote the screenplay and then Wells basically went to town on it as an editor and as a director. Yeah. 
but and that Wells was very protective of his image. He wasn't nuts about sharing credit, but he does share a title card with Mankiewicz in the movie and gives Mankiewicz top billing. He also shares a title card with the director of photography, Greg Toland. It says, directed by Orson Welles and shot by Greg Toland, which is unusual and generous. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I know that um, this is, yeah, I I know about like uh, the history (laughs) of the screenplay and stuff. Oh, well, I, I guess I was just asking yeah. you. Right. I was just asking you, like, how you guys could have imagined. Obviously, you haven't read his massive script for that. What do you what do you think might have been uh, cut out of the film? And what do you think of the you know, now that now that you've seen Citizen Kane or, or Mank or vice versa? Uh, what do you think, you know, a, a, a three times uh, longer Kane could have been, you know? Or oh, maybe, well, what are your I mean, uh, this is interesting because it's like, what do you choose to show in a story that's actually about a guy's entire adult life? In fact, his entire life, it even starts with him as a little kid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I think everything in the movie is kind of perfect. What they choose to focus on is, is really perfect. And uh, I don't think you need to see much more of him as a boy growing up at, in the boarding house. (laughs) Uh, When the boy first Mm -hmm. comes to the big city, Mm-hmm. They kind of get that over with quickly. Uh, yeah. uh, when he was in college, when he was in college with Jed, you don't need to see them getting drunk in college or getting thrown out of Harvard. But I mean, you could, I guess, but uh, that's a different movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I was just thinking uh, part of the film seems like it intentionally obfuscates. And like at the beginning, it explains so much. But somewhere in that opening and in his childhood, I was lost at how he was going to be, he was automatically so rich. Like I understand he inherited a large sum of money from somewhere. I'm, I still can't remember it. Yeah, it was it doesn't matter. like a trust he got. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, I know. It's just. No, but I mean, it's just some boarder in the boarding house left them some document and it ended up being like for a mine and it ended up making a lot of money. And it's just like, boom, he's rich. It, that it kind of doesn't matter how he got there. Yeah. I got you. That's a story. element. Okay. Well, let's, uh, well, let's start it right at the top. Uh, Cassie, James, the movie's called Citizen Kane, yet it doesn't use the phrase Citizen Kane. What do you think of the title and how it reflects the way he referred to himself when running for governor as I'm an American? Yeah. Uh, I'm an American. The title, I believe, is actually a, a studio guy at RKO came up with the title. And I think it's a great title because it's just like mm-hmm. the title is like some guy named Kane. Because he he tries to be uh, he he tries mm-hmm. to run for governor. He has ideas mm-hmm. about being the president, but he never is. He's always yeah. a, a, a civilian, a citizen. So I think it's a great kind of slightly ironic mm-hmm. title, you know. And of course, he's a very significant person with a great deal of power, but he's just some American yeah. citizen and of a very wealthy, privileged, and dangerous uh, class. <laughs> Who's not interested in gold mines, oil wells, shipping, or real estate? Cassie, what say you about Citizen Kane? About what in general? <laughs> oh, well, uh, the, 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 the theme of uh, the beginning, like James said, he's just a citizen. Uh, yeah, just a citizen. Just a guy well, with a lot of money. So, yeah, so the whole film, I I guess, it's, it's about how do you define a life, right? Like, so... And that's what it is. It's, it's how do you... 1,600-something minutes, I think. Yeah, five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred minutes. Yeah, um, <laughs> but 
Yeah, in a broad sense, and I think, I guess this isn't really your question, but one of the reasons why it still lands today, like James was saying, is because from birth through adulthood through death, like that's something we all go through. And who we are is completely dependent on the person. Like we're all we're all a different person to everyone in our lives, right? And we're we're all a different person to ourselves. And we take our true self, our true individuality with us to the grave, just like he took Rosebud to the grave. No one will ever know that except him. And that's universal. Do you know what I mean? That's something that will never change. We all go through that. We're all the thing that's interesting to me is that <laughs> there you okay, go. Go on. I want to first. Uh, sorry to interrupt, James. I just want to applaud Cassie for that. That might have been her best answer on the show so far. Thank you. Oh, thank on this you episode so much, or in the Raj? history of the podcast. Nice of you. Great. I think in the whole show. I think in the whole show. Oh, thanks. The thing that's interesting to me is that nice. it's like a psychological <laughs> portrait of a kind of a fucked up guy and. uh he has, he, you know, he's, he's got major abandonment issues. He was ripped from his family. He misses his mom. And, uh, and then he basically wants love, but he's broken. It's also uncanny and eerie how sort of Trumpian the character is, which, was, which often came up uh, uh, from, from the incredible neediness neediness for public love yet the broken ability to actually return genuine love or emotion right down to the fact that when he loses an election he says it was a fraud (laughs) it's kind of nuts how much it kind of foreshadows trump but it's sort of a portrait of a kind of a psychology and i dare say a kind of toxic masculinity where uh this guy through his need to have people love him all of his sort of career choices are made because that's what he wants. So he he runs a newspaper and decides to start out as a kind of populist because he wants the people to love him. But he also resents the banker who ripped him from his family. So he wants to fuck with that guy. He literally says to him, you know, the banker says when he's old, you know, what do you want or what do you want to be? And he turns to him and says, everything you hate, which is like <laughs> really crazy. Then he he has this mistress, he gets divorced and then, she aspires to be a singer, but she's not really that good. And he basically forces her and uses all his power to make her super famous, but she hates it. She doesn't like it. The audience hates her. And then his friend writes an honest review of how she's not good. And he has to fire the friend, but he also wants the friend to love him. So he ends up finishing the bad review. So it's just a series of these very deep sort of psychological gestures that drive his his career and i just find that a really fascinating character <laughs> uh-huh. it, it it is fascinating but uh my thought it sounds like you're uh might disagree with this was my thought originally is that another one of the themes besides nostalgia and the longing for childhood a la rosebud was that money drives a person's life to 100 uncanny depths and it can't buy you happiness just like uh, she says at the end she says, you know, you never gave me anything I wanted, which means she never, he never gave her a heart that's definitely he didn't have there. one to give her. Yeah. Um, there, yeah, there's, there's also, you know, you've got progressive Mankiewicz and Wells coming out of the great depression. There's definitely a kind of left-wing uh, skepticism and even anger at these sort of, uh, you know, 
Robert Barron type uh, <laughs> uh, untrammeled capitalists. Mm-hmm. 100% that's there. That kind of skepticism about the whole idea of sort of American capitalistic success and the cost of that and the sort of cost of that in, in soul, if you will. So yeah, there's a lot of going on in the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so Cassie, yeah. let me ask you, was this a horror film? By the way, I love that dun, score. It's a great dun, score. Dun, music in it. And it, <laughs> I, I, I did, yeah. yeah and then, I mean, and then at the end, it, 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 sorry, and then at the end, it ends with no trespassing, and you get this smoke going off in the distance that uh, yeah, someone watching it with me suggested yeah. could, could be, might represent a foreshadowing of the Holocaust, which I looked it up and was happening at the time they were finishing producing this film, you know, 1941, Well, there's a reference to the war in Europe in it, of course, a, a kind of mo- movies made in 41 oh, that's before right. Pearl yeah. Harbor. So it's after the war in Europe, but before yeah. the United States was involved. Yeah. And there is a joke in the newsreel where the newsreel indicates that yeah. this interview is from 1935. And he says there won't be a war in Europe, which he's wrong about. So, but mm-hmm. there's definitely like, you know, oh, yeah. audiences at yeah. time were aware of that might happen. You know, that's actually part of the reason War of the Worlds freaked everybody out. That was in 39. People were still, Americans were kind of worried that we might Mm -hmm. get into the war. So then when they turned on the radio and they said Martians were landing in New Jersey, a lot of people bought it because they were just already kind of coiled and primed for that news, which did indeed happen a couple of years later (laughs) that we're in this war. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Cassie, what do you think of the film as a character study? Um, well, I was going to say to what you were saying before, it could be seen as a horror film if you think of it in the sense of like, is there anything more horrific than a, a life not well lived, right? Or, yeah. uh, you know, so in, in a sense, it could be. No, 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 no. go on. Um, uh, this is interesting. Go ahead, James. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I mean, I think I kind of, I kind of said everything basically as far as character study go, but it's the kind of the timeless theme of, who are we? What is life actually all about? And what's really important when it's all over? You know, I mean, that's basically what I see this film as. Right. I know there's a lot more to it than this that. But yeah, because there's a, all these different themes and stuff that's, that's in there. So me. that, you know, you don't have to, you know, <laughs> everyone's going to focus on something else. And yeah, also, no, besides just the themes, for me, just technically, it's highly enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Just if you even go beyond the story and these themes we're talking about, there's just the technical aspect of it. That's Mm -hmm. uh, really exciting and kinetic and, and creative and funny. And there is a horror movie Mm -hmm. element like Bernard Herrmann's score. It's his first movie score, by the way. And he's one of the all time great film. His his last movie score was taxi driver. So he had quite a run. Does, is it is it an homage to Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney? I think there's definitely. I like, think he's just know, drawing from kind of uh, music, the know? same well that composers for those movies are drawing from, and that I I guarantee you Orson Welles loved Frankenstein, yeah. and he just loves good old fashioned. Let's have an effect on the audience. Let's just let's just shake up the audience, and you know, in a way, he's a real populist. He's just like a showman. He's like, let's shake up the audience, and so. Yeah, it begins with like this house on the hill with a light out of it. And, you know, it's like the music's going, da, da, da. That's totally horror-like and fun. The movie is fun. It's, that's part of it. There's some so genre. There's just, there's just a sense of yeah. fun. Throughout, and I feel let's, like. Let's, yeah. Even does crazy things like near the end, he has that shot of the cockatoo mm-hmm. screeching. 
And it's just like, because, like, yes. you know, as we know, Zan- there were a lot of birds and animals yeah. at Xanadu, but he's also just sticking that in there to wake everybody up. That woke yeah, me up. Totally. That, that worked for me. Uh, there, was, there was another shot that I enjoyed, and I feel like I've seen it, like, in more recent films, but not older ones, where it's it was the shot of, like, a Yeah, that's a super, yeah, when he hires the staff of the rival into, newspaper. Like, like, and Do you know what I'm talking seamlessly, about? Very seamlessly. It's a super cool shot. That's the other thing. There's yeah, like there's I thought whole, that was almost fun. every yeah. scene has some sort of optical effect yeah. or special effect because it was it was actually a relatively low budget movie, mm-hmm. but through matte paintings and optical effects and illusions, they create this sense of this giant estate and these giant statues, and there's all kinds of super cool effects uh, in it as well. So that's just you know people don't think of it as like a special effects movie, but it kind of is. And that's, again, just Wells being kind of a showman and just loving playing with this stuff and having an effect. What can I do here? And you just, you get a sense of that excitement. And it's also, he's 25 years old when he made Mm -hmm. it. You know, he'd been acting professionally for almost 10 years at that point. He actually started as a teenager. He didn't go to college. In a sense, he was totally ready to do this movie when it happened. He'd been directing on Broadway. He'd been directing these very successful radio shows. He'd been acting professionally since he was 16. So he's just ready. So it's just like a young guy who has complete control and is ready to do something super creative. It's kind of like Sergeant Pepper, frankly, (laughs) which is a really creative thing by a bunch of 20 year old, (laughs) 20 somethings who have been doing this for since they were teenagers as well and are ready to to move to the next level. And I tell you this, I bet there's people today who listen to Sergeant Pepper and go, yeah, I don't know what this is. This There's tubas in this song. Like, I don't know. I can't find my way into this. This isn't land for me. And you know what? That's fine. <laughs> this guy's singing about a girl leaving and there's violins. Like, I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I just don't know where Old to, music. this isn't music to me. <laughs> Well, it's uh, it's part of like you and Cassie were saying, like she said. I, I think, think films have dumbed down. I think there are always bad movies and there are always good movies and there's just but different I, styles. I mean, but there are, there are like conventions right. like Orson Welles yes. is a limited actor. He's great and actually quite commanding, but he's not an actor of great depth mostly. And and But that actually works for that character because the character is not a man of great depth and the character has a distance quality anyway. But Wells is also an actor in 1941, so even though he's very Mm -hmm. American, he has a bit of a mid-Atlantic thing in his voice. So there, and there are just certain conventions to to the way he acts that are dated. So I'm not saying there aren't dated aspects of the movie, but but the dated aspects are just a delivery system for feelings and emotions, and our delivery systems for those change over the years. But if you can get past the sort of conventions the emotion and the and the excitement and the feeling is still there so that's but this is a whole other topic i'm also fascinated by like conventions and acting styles and stuff but frankly uh he loves actors and the performances in the movie are amazing Mm -hmm. and i think like dorothy comingor who plays susan gives this really raw performance like i don't think there's anything dated about that performance at all the women are great also ruth warwick who plays his first wife is very elegant, you know, uh, privileged lady. Uh, she's great mm-hmm. and really funny as she sort of gets older 
And, you know, that very funny sequence where they sort of show their relationship at the breakfast table over the course mm. of several years. And and she very subtly shows us the changes in that character. You know, the first yeah. scene, they're super into each other. And by the end, she's reading the rival newspaper and giving him this really devastating expression. <laughs> yeah. And Agnes Morvet is that's, too, who that's I didn't a, even yeah, recognize exactly. her. That's you know, I know her as scene. Samantha's mom. Uh, wish, right? I think that's one of the greatest <laughs> one-off, one-scene characters and performances mm -hmm. ever because you really get a sense of the fact that she feels this is the right thing. Yeah. And she has this combination of, it's sort of like this, she's protecting herself. She has this very steeliness where she's saying to the father, no, we're going to do this. But you can also see the heartbreak underneath that she knows she has to get rid of her son. Uh, but she doesn't like cry on screen. But you can see you can see that dynamic. And it's that's very hard to do. And it's really extraordinary. Like he loved actors. And I love acting. It's I'm an actor. When I first got into these old movies, that's what I led with was like the acting. I That's what I would always focus on. And it's very satisfying just as a in terms of performances, you know, that's just another aspect that I love. And I do love Wells and I think he's perfect for the movie and it would make no sense for him to have cast someone else. Cause it's a weird movie. It really is. It's such a personal expression of something he's making. So of course he has to play that character, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I had to take some notes while you were talking cause I didn't want to interrupt, but uh, I wanted to go back. Um, I'm going to ask you guys two questions. Uh, the first one, were they, and I'll answer them first, just give you my answers. Uh, was there a moment that took you out of the film? And conversely, was there a moment that really drew you in? Uh, for me, it was those uh, flash forward sequences with an old, with old man Leland, uh, his one time close friend being seen taken away by nurses <laughs> arm in arm as if he needed help walking. However, he got up on his own power and didn't seem like he needed any help walking. So that, that kind of took, there you go. See, James knows what I'm talking about. That sort of took me out of it just a little bit. I was like, this guy doesn't need any help walking. I mean, granted, you know, the uh, the lim limitations of old age makeup in 1941 at the time, but still they could have done something else with that. Now, the moment that took me in, uh, as you mentioned, was you were talking about his limited range as an actor. However, the moment that brought me in the most was uh, hit the best thing he did acting in the film, I thought. He was talking to his future wife, the singer who he would build Kubla Khan for and opera houses all over the, the country. And he was telling her, he was leading up to talking about Rosebud. He said he was going to go to a warehouse. I forget if it was where it was, but he was going to go back and look at the things from his childhood. He said kind of a nostalgia thing. And then she didn't react or maybe she was taking it in or didn't react the way he wanted her to. And he just snaps in that instant. And he looks up at her and he says, so what do you do? I read a bunch of newspapers. What do you do? He was furious at her for not reacting the way that he wanted her to. It was like his one, one of the few moments in the film where he, That's, he, he allowed another character to come into his world and she didn't for that two yeah. seconds. And that was it. That's, an inch, that's, that's fascinating. I don't see that moment it, that way, so but that, I'm not questioning really that that's how that landed yeah. for you. But I will say that is one of my favorite scenes of his as an actor. And my favorite mm -hmm. moment in that scene is when he's talking about, yeah, he went to like collect his mother's yeah. stuff or whatever. And she says something like mothers are important. She says something about mothers and he looks at her with this incredible love in his eyes. And you realize she's the new mother. There's this very deep kind of, you know, is this 
thing cliche we talk about, you sort of mm-hmm. in partners, we sort of see our parents in a way, you know, it's just a weird kind of <laughs> thing. But like he he's falling in love with her, but he also needs this sort of maternal thing mm-hmm. in his life, which that's 100% part of men-women relationships uh, <laughs> is there's a maternal thing that the women offer the men and that I've heard many women say they fall in love with the boy that they see in the man and stuff like that. So, and and you can really see that in his face where he's like, I, I'm falling in love with this person because of the maternal glow that I'm getting from her. And I miss my mom. And that's why I want to be with this woman. And I think he's great in that moment. <laughs> oh, is oh, the end of the, so, the end of the father. That's a, Oh, that's a great callback to our father episode, James. Uh, I don't see his well, mother. That, that was the ending of the I father. Him he says, like, I want my mommy. Yeah. Trying to be uh, self-deprecating father. and charming and being like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, but I do, I do. I love his acting in that moment. Yeah, and he, yeah, I, was I don't say, mean to say he's, uh, I, I'm perhaps like I'm wrong when I say he's a limited actor. I'm saying he, he, he can be very deep, but his default is kind of surfacey. And it's a very commanding surface. It's very commanding and very compelling. Uh, but it's more rare where he you regularly sort of see what's happening underneath. But you do see it there in that moment. So I'm 100% behind you. I will say the moment that takes me out is another acting moment where it's only for a second, but it's in the scene early on at the Inquirer where he writes the Declaration of Principles. And then Jed says, I want to keep, th- I'm going to keep that. I want to keep that handwritten yeah. thing. I think it might be very important someday. And then the scene ends with a close-up. By the way, close-ups are relatively rare and uh, in the movie. he A lot of scenes play out in like two shots and masters, which is really interesting and also unusual for the time. But there's a close-up of Wells, uh, and his eyeline is he's supposed to be looking at Joseph Cotton, and he's smiling, and it's a slightly awkward smile. But whenever I see that shot, I'm like, that's just Orson Welles looking at a mark. He's not looking at Joseph Cotton. <laughs> it looks fake to me. <laughs> so that that's the one moment where it kind of looks fake. Uh, <laughs> but I yeah. would say I'm drawn in also to like moments like you just described. Huh. Um, okay. Another great acting moment that really draws me in is when, and the whole sequence is fantastic. When Not the opening. They're, they're at his rally for when he's running for governor. And he's given this big thundery speech. And then his wife sends the boy home with someone else. And she gets into the carriage. And he's like, what's going on? And he sticks his head in. And he goes, what's going on? Why did you send Junior home? And it's, it's very real. And you can see he's kind of freaking out. He wants, and, and, she, and she's great, too. And she just looks at him. And she says, it might be nothing, but I'm going to this address. And it's Susan's address where he has his mistress. And that moment between them is so powerful. And it, it's very real. And and mm-hmm. every time I see that moment, it's it's a small moment, but it's so. And there's lots of moments like that where there's like genuine emotion happening on screen. Uh, so yeah, that's just I'm just picking out a random one as something that I'm like, God, I love this moment where he sticks his head in the car. It's so great, Cassie. Yes. Um. So there's I a love scene, scene where there's a bunch of like dancing girls and they have those little outfits on. <laughs> I really <laughs> like that scene. I'm. Yeah, I like it too. And I'm someone who's, I'm always fascinated with people who have like small roles in one movie because I just want to like jump in and talk to them and be like, who are you? What's your story? You know what I mean? And it's one of those things where, you know, I see all of these women who like 
Yeah, there's one. There's one girl who sort of you know what I mean? it's who just, he grabs and kisses, those, one of those and she kind of gives him a "What are you doing?" By. face, and then she smiles and moves away. And it's a great moment, and it's very real too. It really seems like that's happening. Totally, totally. Oh my god, one hundred percent. But that, and that's that such an insane Trumpian scene also, like, because it's like he's feeling really good about himself in the newspaper. But he's also engineering this event that he's in the center of because it's all about him again. It's a, it's ostensibly the success of the paper and the great relationship where there's these great shots of Jed and and Bernstein sort of sitting in the corner and they're sort of singing along. But there's something really weird about the way their faces look. They're like really close to the frame. And it just gives this kind of uncomfortable quality to what's going on, which is so great, sort of suggesting the cracks in, in you know, that that uh, the fissures in this mm-hmm. <laughs> in this character and this situation uh, there's just it's so masterfully done but it and it's also just so much fun Orson Welles is and then there's going to be a musical number in this thing <laughs> I know <laughs> yeah yeah there is and like you were talking about the the wide shots and the close up shots there is um toward the end where exactly. she's in you know this huge mansion and there's a fireplace that could probably fit like 10 people <laughs> inside it, the huge fireplace, you know, that. and the shots were so wide. You yeah. really got the feeling of, yeah, their like, voices are echoing. Alone. And of like, course, yeah, not alone, the sound but, is great. But and he was alone. a radio and their voices were like years, so. echoey even like that's right up his alley. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just full of all these great mm-hmm. details that really work. Um, and the thing is, he also had great collaborators. And again, it's very personal because he's not just using like studio actors. He's using people. A lot of the actors, it's their first movie. It's like, I think it's Joseph Cotton's first movie. It's Ruth Warwick's first movie who plays, you know, his first wife. And he's using a lot of people who he worked with in the theater and in his radio show, Everett Sloan, uh, Ray Collins, who plays the rival politician, Jen, uh, uh, G- uh, whatever his name is, Gettys. Uh, uh, they're all awesome. They're really, really excellent. And part of the reason they're great is because they've worked with him before. Gettys, and he knows Gettys. them and they have kind of a shorthand, you know. So and then like he's got a one of the all time great DPs who's super into the fact that Wells has never made a movie before. Greg Tolan was very seasoned but was super into working with this young guy who kind of didn't know what he was doing on a film set, but felt like there was something great about that. He's got a wonderful composer. Herman Mankiewicz has written a great script that yes, Orson Welles is then fashioning to his own purposes quite appropriately, but you know, it's just all the elements and all the collaborators are really excellent. So the thing just works. Movies are weird. It's like amazing. There are any good movies because they're so hard to make. It really is true. They're so bizarre, but like he is just ready. He's like, I'm ready to make a great movie. And um, yeah, he's got collaborators. He has a studio that's behind him. And it was really the only time it worked that well for him. <laughs> I mean, he made other great movies. He made other great movies, but it's the fr- it's, yeah. But they were made under duress. I was about to say it was the first time. Like is, uh, he was just like, hey, I want you and you and you. And the studio is like, yes. But once they finished it, they were had problems because because first of all, Hearst was still that figure is inspired by Hearst. It's not about Hearst per se, but he really tried to stop it. He wanted to destroy it actually, and could have succeeded, which would have been right. Un- it's like that would have been like the burning of the library at Alexandria. It would have been one of these un- unthinkable things. Like mm. that, that, that it ruffled 
it ruffled some feathers. We should have mentioned that Mank connection there, uh, yeah. you know, from from the movie Mank. How was uh, you know, they show I think a lot it's of really funny too that Mank and why the, he hated the, him so much. One of the, he was uh, written, right after uh, the newsreel yeah, in the projection room scene Citizen where the reporters Kate. are talking, uh, the main reporter is like, "But what's he like? Like he's he, he's not." And then he mentions like like Ford or Hearst. He, they actually mentioned Hearst in the beginning of the movie to go. So, oh, by the way, this is not Hearst, just so you know. It's like a disclaimer. It's hilarious. Yeah, covering their butts. What a oh. the total butt cover. There's a throwaway reference to Hearst. Right. So, oh, this guy who's very <laughs> similar to butts. Hearst, but yeah. it's not Hearst, just so you know. <laughs> totally. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, guys, uh, this has been uh, fantastic. We could uh, break down a lot of individual scenes, uh, or we could talk about our no, final I mean, thoughts. Well, I, I, this have, is obviously uh, a movie that we could do like a whole podcast into? series about. Anybody? But I don't know. <laughs> that, I'm surprised there was never a, ni- a colorized that would be a version nightmare. of it. A I nightmare. read that they almost released a colorized version once, but never, you know, because it would. But, but, but yeah, no, I I, yeah. I I see what you mean about how they could do a whole podcast series on it because of how it introduced a whole new storytelling language and so many things in there on screen uh, are like you know popular gifs now like his uh, his applauding in the movie theater uh, yes. for his uh, for his wife's opera performance he doesn't applaud at first I I thought at first it was because he was embarrassed but then after I saw that he was waiting for the audience to applaud it was because he was he wanted to make sure he was honoring her properly he didn't want to. Applaud and be seen as favorable to his uh, his wife. That's another great. That that's another great for, like, acting moment. That that. But the, he um, is he is people. A of, see that he's aware that she right? is not right? a great singer. Yeah, yeah. It's Andrew clapping, and he's really good at the. He's good at those like intense. Yes, yeah, he was very very very. He's very Another great moment too. Oh, that's right. That's what I wanted to ask you guys about in that scene. It's not immediately clear. Do you think he was a searching for uh, the the snow globe that represented Rosebud in that scene, and it, the globe reminded him of it? Uh, also, do you think he kept the globe because it reminded him of Rosebud, or did he just have the latter? The snow globe I think he just comes across. I don't think he's looking Rosebud for it. That he moment destroys it. He's just angry at what's him, happened. She's and left he him. To go and back she, to his childhood. She's great in that scene. She's basically like, "Try me." You know, she's like, and then really that's incredibly relevant, man, any relationship to partners, not just men, women, anyone in a relationship where he's like, uh, she's like, oh, this is all about you, huh? Listen to what you just said. You know, she really gives it to him. And it's very contemporary. You know, he's like, you know, I, I need this or whatever. And she's like, wow, it's still about you. And she's like. And I don't remember the dialogue, but she's basically like, look what I can do. Watch what I'm going to do. And then she just walks out. Like, she's really brutal. And she's really uh, self-possessed in that moment. Right. Uh, uh, and then he's just like, there's nothing he can do. So he just destroys things like angry men do sometimes. And then yeah, I think he just comes across the globe. And then the globe is like, well, this means something to me. And yeah. it's partially, it's hers. Yeah. Uh, but it's also, it, it, it reminds him of, before he was ripped away, before he was untimely ripped from his family. Yeah. But the Rosebud thing is funny, too, because it's a bit of a what Hitchcock called a MacGuffin. It's just kind right. of a device just, that that Yeah, the person the that he used to be. But in a yeah. sense, it yeah, kind of exactly. doesn't matter because, uh, as I said okay. to you before we recorded, it's kind of the journey. And so, yeah. like, it's not like it's the big revelation. Oh, wow, mm-hmm. it was a sled. It's like, yeah, it was. But they even, right. like, 
Thompson even says in the end of the movie, yeah, but it is, but it isn't. Like, we don't really know. Oh. <laughs> They're basically saying, we're about to wrap this up, but in a sense, we can't wrap it up in a neat little ribbon. So then film acknowledges that. Mm. Right. Right. And I got to admit that a guy that rich, they'd have cut his, his uh, <laughs> servants would have cataloged everything in that house and they would have found the sled with rosebud ah, on it. I'd buy it. And I mean, they would have. Anyway, so that's it. And uh, actually, now thinking about that, right? Wouldn't they? You know, and obviously that scene with all oh, that stuff I mean, being burned. They're quoting. Was, right. Okay, right it was uh, carried over to other films like <laughs> Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they put the thing in the way in the huge vault and everything is lost. Right. Sure. Sure. But why do you think it, it ended in a, a big. Why did they burn everything? Why do you, why do you guys think thematically did they burn everything, have the no trespassing sign? Why was it shut off from the rest of the world? Why? Because the whole film, they were trying to tell a story. And then when they got just up to the precipice of yeah. a story uh, to find out what a story was about, they decided they didn't want to tell a story anymore and they burned everything. There's because also, no one could figure out his story. Yeah, That's just and like, it. He just, no one he, will he know. He collected no this stuff. No one will ever know. It was like a you know, mania on his part, but he had no emotional he connection to the stuff you know, either. Kind of the whole point. He just, as he says I early... Think, it, Early in the movie, but when he's old, he says to buy things. I just, I got, I made all this money to buy things, but it's just sort of right. meaningless. Uh, also, I think there's a very interesting, there's a great uh, minor character who's his butler who basically says at the end, burn all this stuff. The one who says, yes, at the very end, a great character. And, and so I feel like the butler is sort of saying, you know what? Who needs this shit anymore? It's like his choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was I was thinking that Butler represented the entire ouvoir of Ricardo Montalbán later. He probably watched that and he was like, "Wow, look how suave this Butler is! I got to be that guy." He's like, "No, no, sir, you do not understand. I'm Ricardo Montalbán. Very, very suave." Uh, oh my god! Well, great. That's it. Oh, you know what? We uh, we got it's time for ratings. Uh, Cassie, Just make it give make a rating it uh, to show him how we do our system. There's no wrong answer. I'm scared. No How am answer. I supposed to rate, rate Citizen Five sleds. Five sleds. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, well, we do out of 10. We do it out of 10. So, um, I, like I said, I, I find films like this intimidating. If I don't 100% know what's going on, I feel a little bit intimidated. Josh, you're, you're smiling, but I do. Mm -hmm. I'm just being yes. honest. <laughs> Um, well, that was for a screenshot later. I, I know you like to get those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Um, I completely respect it. I'll probably watch it again just because I think maybe now after we've talked about it, I'll get some more out of it. But again, the, ge the general message of what's really important, what really matters, you know, you can achieve anything you want in life, but when you're gone... All, all your legacy is that belongs to everyone else. And like, it's up to you to make sure people remember you the way that you're meant to be remembered. Do you know what I mean? So that's something I think is, is really just universal and that like we all can learn something from that. So yeah, I, I see it as a far more emotional movie than I think a lot of people do because that's what I took nice. away from it more than anything. So anyway, okay, I'm gonna stop babbling. Um, I'll give it... I, I give it 10 sleds, 10 sleds up. 10. <laughs> yes. Excellent. 100%. <laughs> uh, James? Great, 10 sleds up. I like it. Um, I, uh, I'll i still, I, I, I concede your point that the opening is a satire and very much reflective of its time and that the audience would understand contextually. 
but I still maintain it. It was slightly too long. Uh, I could have done without all the uh, the explainers of the characters in the future, in those post 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 death interviews. So, but oh, I, mean, I love that you know, guy. I still that love guy it. is so fucking I'll hilarious. It, we didn't talk about too. this character, but I will give it nine point no! five. Frustrated like that opera teachers. That, that, that is because that, that's that, I, that, that's a really funny, funny character. <laughs> Very good. Great. I told you they'd yell about directors, yell about the plot. They yelled about the act and hope they let the guests talk. But mostly Josh and Cass.